If you have your Bibles, and you can keep it there in James 1. Last week, we heard the whole book of James. And now, beginning this week and every week up until just before Thanksgiving, we will be looking at every paragraph or every couple of paragraphs and work our way through the entire book of James this fall. And I always feel a little bit, um, I haven't done this very often, but in, in, uh, because of last week, I feel like last week was the, f- was, was the first time I had a fully biblical sermon because I recited the text. And so I feel like today, some of you are gonna be saying, boy, last week was so good. Why are you talking so much? But it's the nature of preaching. It's what we have to do. We believe that James was the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this book to believers who have been scattered because of persecution. If you look at verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So these are believers who have been scattered. Acts eleven nineteen talks about this. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. It says, now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, this is when Stephen was martyred, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. This is probably describing the, the exodus of many Jewish believers from Jerusalem and from Judea and from Palestine itself. And now these believers are under siege. They've had to relocate. They are, there's been a massive upheaval in their life. And now they're trying to recreate their life. Trying to find jobs, trying to make a living. And they are being besieged by a series of trials of all kinds. There's economic deprivation. Clearly from the text, you see that that is true. There is economic, in some sense, uh, abuse or deprivation at the hands of powerful, wealthy people, certainly. Maybe even wealthy people who are believers themselves. There is persecution. They are under duress. And what James is concerned with, he's concerned in these trials, will these Jewish believers who've come to faith in Jesus, will they be able to flourish in their walk with Christ under pressure? Or will the pressure and the trials and the difficulties squeeze them so that their faith begins to atrophy, that they, they, they don't know how to respond to trials, and therefore, their faith begins to weaken. They begin to struggle spiritually. And obviously, this is a pretty important book for us. <laughs> Many of you, I, I know a number of you, are facing very difficult situations right now. Serious trials. Some of you have been dealing with, over a very long period of time, the same trial that never relents. And if you're here this morning and you're not experiencing a trial, Monday, or next month, or the month after, you're going to get news 
Something's going to happen to you, and, and you will be under duress. You will be under a trial, a difficulty, a pressure. And the question is, will you be able, by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to withstand that trial and flourish even when your life, in many ways, is not going well, at least from a worldly point of view. Now, what we want to do this morning is, I, I, what James does is, James is going to call us all, all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, he's going to call us to a response. You all know what that response is, you've just heard it. Count it all joy. But I'm not going to start with that. In part, I would generally encourage you, if you're caring for someone in a trial, that in the first 17 minutes of the person's trial, don't quote James 1, 2. Can you imagine? It happens. I apologize in advance. You just find out the worst possible news, and somebody on the phone that you've shared with says, well, remember, brother, remember, sister, count it all joy. Yeah, thanks a lot. So we'll deal with the response later because what I want us to see that James gives us four resources in order to deal with trials. Resources that I, my contention is we underuse these resources. And because we underuse them, we have a very, very hard time of responding with joy to our trials. So the four resources, the one response, let's dive in and look at the first resource. We see it in verses, in verse three. Again, he says, count it all joy. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The first resource that you have to grab a hold on, if you're going to be a person who learns to respond well in trials, you have to come to the place where you believe that God has good purposes for you in the midst of your trials. James is very clear. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, when, when, you, when God allows difficulties into your life, that is, God can use that to make you a person of deeper endurance. But of course, James goes on to say, it's not simply endurance, one character quality. God is concerned about the whole person, because he says, and let steadfastness, let endurance, verse 4, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, when God allows trials into our life and we learn to respond to them, God has good purposes to help us in our trials, and those purposes are to create in deeper endurance, but also to, to become a more perfect and complete person. Now, I don't think James is trying to say you can become perfect. I think he's trying to say you can learn to be a more complete person, a more mature person. And the only way to get that done in many ways is to go through difficulties so that God can show himself real to you in those trials and build you into a person person of much deeper character. Now, the reality is this. Nobody likes to hear this. I know some of you are saying, well, just why? Can't we get a little more positive here? But the weird thing about us 
is, is that we accept this principle basically in almost every other area of our life except spiritually. Right? And in other words, if you're going to run a marathon this fall, 26.2 miles, you're not going to get ready for the marathon by sitting on your couch and watching the British baking show with a pile of chips and guac, okay? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to suffer. You're going to have to purposely create your own physical trial by running longer and longer distances. You know, I always, I, I always, I'd always I, I don't like these people. And if you, you have a sticker like this, I don't know about this. I just, I, I don't like the people who have a 26.2 sticker on the back of their car. I feel like they're bragging and arrogant and making me feel bad. But I did see a sticker the other day that was really exciting. There was a guy who had a sticker that says 27.4. And I was, is this a new kind of race? And then I got up closer and it says, I got lost. The first resource is we have to learn to look at our trials from God's perspective, the good that he wants to do in us by making us people of endurance, making us people of deep and profound character. I love how the Phillips, uh, sort of the J.B. Phillips New Testament uh, uh, sort of interprets this verse. He says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance, but let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men and women of mature character. I don't know about you, but in my own life, there are many things I am willing to endure lots of suffering for. Seventh grade, I played football, junior high football in my school. I was very small. I was too small. My mom begged me not to play, but she couldn't have paid me enough money not to play. I was so short. I was so little. They barely could find pads for a person as small as me, but I didn't care because I wanted to play football. Two-a-day football practices in Miami, Florida in the middle of August are not pleasant experiences. The humidity is 150%. I lost weight at an alarming rate and I wasn't that big to begin with. I would eat three banana shakes, three bananas, three scoops of ice cream every day just to keep my weight from you know, precipitously going down. So small was I when I made the team. I was so proud that on Tuesday, the, our first game, I got to wear my jersey to school. My jersey was so big. It really wasn't the jersey's problem. It was I was so small, my jersey went past my hands. Kids laughed at me. I didn't care. I'm on the team. I can't tell you how many hours I practiced to get to that moment. It wasn't just summer practice before the first season. My dad and I would practice for hours upon hours for years where he would throw the ball and I would catch it. 
he was always really good. He'd always say, he'd always act like it was a huddle. He said, all right, it's fourth and goal. Cowboys down by six. Ten seconds on the clock. This is the last play of the Super Bowl. You got to catch this. And I would go and do a pattern, and he would throw it. Sometimes he would throw it badly just to see what I would do. And I, I won a lot of Super Bowls. <laughs> I also dropped a lot of passes, too. No one could have dissuaded me for suffering the mockery of my large jersey, the smallness, hours of effort, because I wanted to be on that junior high football team, and I made the team. I even started. It's the smallest wide receiver in the history of junior high football. But I could catch anything. Of course, I only threw about twice a game, but two catches a game in junior high football, massive. You all do this in your own life in other ways, don't you? Practice your musical instrument, you, you do your academics, you stay up late to get a paper done, to do it well. You work late at the office, you'll, you'll endure all kinds of suffering, but when it comes to spiritual life, it's almost as if we have no tolerance for enduring suffering. Even though God is very clear in multiple places, but particularly here in James, that your trials are designed to make you a person of deep character, to make you more like Jesus, to make you a person of deep endurance. And this is my plan for you. And we sometimes fail to embrace that purpose. And when we don't embrace that first resource, God has good purposes for you in your trials and your difficulties. You will never be a person who rejoices all that consistently when those trials come. That's the first resource. Let's look at the second resource. It's in verse uh, 5 uh, through 8. The second resource is this. <laughs> Many of you, I suspect, are going to have trouble seeing God's good purpose for you in trials. And the, James knows that. And so he gives you an exhortation. The second resource is, if you're having trouble seeing God's good purposes in your difficulties, you need to ask God to help you see your trials from God's perspective by asking for wisdom. You need, to, you need to ask God to help you see your trials from his perspective. You need to ask for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible that would encourage you to pray for wisdom, general wisdom for life, career, for relationships. That, that, that's true, but, but I, and, and there's many other verses that say that, but I think this verse is specifically in context is saying, if you are struggling to believe that God has good purposes for your trials, ask God to give you wisdom. Ask God to give you his perspective, which is wisdom, to, to help you see the trials from God's perspective to give you wisdom. And, and for some of you, if you are in the midst of significant trials, maybe this is the only thing you take from the sermon today. I need to pray for wisdom the next week. I need to ask God to give me wisdom because I can't see it. And notice that James is deeply concerned that we ask 
appropriately, we ask in faith. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. See, when you're in the midst of trials, you're going to have a really hard time trusting God that he's got a good purpose for this. And so when, I, when you hear this, oh, I'll pray for wisdom so you can see you know, life from God's perspective, you're like, yeah, right. I, I, I could never have a good perspective. I could never have a God-words perspective on my difficulties. So it says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not supposedly receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Too often, I think, we, we just don't ask God to do what he desperately wants to do for us. To help us see the trials from his perspective. To help us see the good purposes that he has for us. And if that's where you are this morning, I just want to encourage you to maybe the one thing you take from this morning is you're going to ask God to give you wisdom to look at your trials from God's perspective. Because without that, you will have a very difficult time learning how to rejoice. That's the second resource. The third resource, I won't deal a lot with this, but it's in verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Resource number three is you need to remember the great reversal of fortunes that is in the future. You need to remember the reversal of fortunes in the future. The believers here that James is is writing to are struggling under uh, most likely the unrighteous in, in some cases and abusive and unfair and unjust uh, work of wealthy people who are making it very difficult for them to make a living. And many of the believers that have been scattered because of persecution have had to leave in a hurry and they have very few resources. So when James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, he's reminding them that while they may be the victims of an unjust, powerful, wealthy person, there is coming a day when the unjust, wealthy person is going to get justice. And the poor person who struggled in this world is going to be exalted. You see this all over the Bible. Psalm 37 is a great chapter because it talks about, you know, God, why do the wicked, why do the wealthy, why do the powerful who are abusive, why do they prosper and the believers seem to be in deep trouble? And one of the arguments that God makes in that psalm and one of the arguments James is making here is this life is temporary, the future is eternal, and you've got to get your head around the fact that the abuse you may be experiencing from a powerful person will not last forever. But your exaltation to rule and reign in the future kingdom will last forever. And when we remember the reversal of fortune, this future reversal of fortune, it also helps us to deal with some of our trials when we face unjust, difficult, powerful people that have made life very difficult for us. Listen, it's, there's, a number of, there's a number of people in this room right now and online, I, I know that because I've spoken to them, who have got themselves at work 
because of their faith in Christ and because they weren't willing to cut ethical corners, because they, they shared the, their faith in, in a perfectly appropriate way, but it was misinterpreted, they find themselves in deep water at work, sometimes even losing their job because of their faith. Jesus. It's not a bad verse to remember. Powerful people who do unjust things, who may have harmed you, God's going to deal with them. And your exaltation is assured. One day you'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. You may be socioeconomically living in a very difficult place in this world, but in the next world you will rule and reign with Jesus. That's the third resource. One more resource. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trough. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The resource is this. Your trials, and I guess we should say you're standing up under your trials, benefits your present and future life. When James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in a trial, he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. I think that is talking about that your life now, presently, as you learn to rejoice in the midst of your suffering, your life now is going to be uh, much more rich, much more deep, much more profoundly impactful, because you are going to be a much much more mature person, a, a person of endurance, who will make a greater impact even in this life if you learn to remain steadfast under trial. But I also think there's some indication that in the future, when you see Jesus face to face and you've been a person who has withstood uh, trials with a reasonable amount of perseverance, that same Jesus will commend you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You stood up under pressure. You rejoiced under trial. You, you, you hung in there. And in that moment when Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who died for your sins, the one who died to bring you into that new kingdom, the one who gave you strength to help you stand up under trial, commends you for your endurance and your maturity. It will put a very different spin on all of the trials that you faced on this earth. You know, it's uh, football season has started, the NFL. So by tonight, after the Cowboys play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I will be clinically depressed for the 28th year in a row. But I remember what uh, Coach Tom Landry, who was a great coach of the Dallas Cowboys back when we were a good team. Oh, I miss him. He once said this about leadership. Leadership is getting people to do what they don't want to do so that they can become what they really want to become. And oftentimes I think this is what God does for us in the midst of trials. He puts us into situations that we don't like. He puts us into places where we have to learn to rejoice under pressure, where we have to withstand and and learn how to be in... uh, This is going to kill me. 
where he's going to, uh, you know, where we have to stand up and have endurance, where we have to become a more mature person. And we don't like to have to face those kinds of trials. We don't want a Christian life like that. But deep down, I think you do want to be a different person. I mean, the Holy Spirit is living inside each true believer in Jesus Christ. We've been made a new person by God himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, deep down, I think we know we want to be more like Jesus. And what God often does is puts us into situations where we have to be in an uncomfortable situation, do things we don't want to do under pressure so that we can actually become the people we actually want to become in Christ. Your trials benefits both your present and your future. And now lastly, back to the response. Back up to verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The response to the resources we have in, to deal with our trials, the response is we need to count it joy in the midst of our trials. Now, let me tell you what this does not mean. Don't call me this week and say, praise the Lord, pastor. I, I, I totaled my car. Don't put on the prayer chain this week. Praise God, I've got two weeks to live. Just got back from the doctor. That's not what this is talking about. Trials are grievous. Trials are, there are going to be tears. There's going to be losses. There's going to be deep and profound grief. But in the midst of the grief and the tears, you can have joy. A deep, significant uh, uh, depth of joy, knowing that in the midst of this trial, God is in the process of making you a person of much deeper character, a much deeper endurance, a person who looks and acts more like Jesus himself. That's the kind of joy we need to have. That's the kind of joy we need to express. That's the kind of joy that James is encouraging his believers. And again, that joy is not disconnected from the four resources James has provided his readers. So one last story. I think if you're honest with yourself, and in other words, let me back up. I, I think most of you understand, I hope, you've been here at Stonehill for any length of time, that Jesus does not promise that once you come to faith in Jesus, your life is going to be swimmingly successful and and stress-free. Do you all understand that's not true? And, And once you've been a believer for 17 seconds, you know it's true. But in every heart, I think, there is a little bit of you that's a budding prosperity theologian deep in your soul. And you know that's true. You want to laugh at the television preacher who promises these wonderful things. Deep down, you kind of believe it too. I remember growing up, you know, I was a young believer, you know, I was like 12, 13 years old, and I thought, well, I'm following Jesus, but probably a lot of good things should happen. I mean, good things did happen, but I was sort of shocked when I experienced trials. I was like, what happened? My prosperity theologian speaking to me. 
right out of my flesh. And then I met Stan and Florence Huntington. I've shared with them in the past about them. They were 75 years old when I met them. I was scared of him because Stan had a lung condition. He coughed a lot, and he was kind of a little bit cantankerous, I thought. But as I got to know him, my little prosperity theologian started to get smaller and smaller in his voice. Stan and Flo lost their only child in a plane accident with their grandchild. Lost in a horrible plane accident. Stan had a, a, a terrible lung disease that cut short his career, and economically they suffered, and they lived in a very small house there in Miami. Significant losses economically, physically. He just struggled. He could hardly breathe at times. This is a man and, and his wife who had many, many, many unanswered prayers for his health, the economics of their life, and, of course, the safety of their children and grandchild all taken away from them. Stan had this notebook, big notebook, carried around at church. I wouldn't talk to him initially. He said, do you have a prayer request? I said, no, I'm fine. Everything's fine here. Finally, I broke down. I gave him a prayer request. That was a mistake. Not really. And the next week, he goes, how's it going? I told him what was happening. He wrote it down. That's an answer to prayer. I'm going to keep praying. And when things weren't answered in my prayer, in the prayer requests I gave to him, he says, that's okay. Sometimes God says no. Sometimes God doesn't do it in our timing. We got to learn how to deal with that. This is a guy who had hundreds, probably thousands of unanswered prayers, trials upon trials that affected his whole life. He wasn't able to do all the kinds of ministry things that he wanted to do with his wife because he was so sickly. And yet, for a bunch of teenagers in that church, we got to know Stan and realized that our prosperity theology was all wrong and that here's a guy who's had massive problems in his life and he still trust Jesus and he's allowing Jesus to make him more like Jesus under massive pressure. Change my life. I think we underestimate that sometimes when you face big trials, economically you're hurt. You don't have time to do ministry like you wanted to. But I think you don't realize if you are able to, by God's grace, stand up under pressure and learn to rejoice in the midst of your trials, the impact you make, even though your trials may have limited your impact, standing up under the trial will mean that you have a massive impact for Christ on everyone around you. We've got to learn to rejoice in our trials. Why? Because our trials are the ways that God is making us into a more mature person, making us more like Christ, making us a person of endurance. If you're struggling to see that, you need to ask God to give you wisdom to see that. You need to understand that your trials, um, uh, the, the, the reversal of fortune, what, no matter what you're dealing with now, that situation will not last forever and God will deal with the injustice being poured out there on you and you will be raised to a position of honor and responsibility in that new kingdom when you rule and reign with Christ in the future. You have to realize that when we learn to rejoice in our trials, we are building by God's spirit into our lives a person of deep character like Christ 
that has value not only for this life, but there will be a commendation in the next. If we hold on to these resources a little tightly and ask God to help us embrace them more deeply, we can be people who can rejoice no matter what we actually are experiencing. That's what James is going to try to help us to do week by week from now until Thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, give us wisdom to see trials from your perspective. Help us to believe that God has good purposes in the midst of our trials. I pray that you would also help us to believe that there's a reversal of fortune coming, that there is reward not only in this life but the next when we stand up under trial. And I pray that you would help each of us to learn to rejoice no matter what we may be experiencing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.